Hi, I'm Billy Shore. On today's episode of Add Passion and Stir, we'll be talking with former Secretary of Education John B. King and my colleague Robert Simmons, the Managing Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Share Our Strength. We'll be talking about closing achievement gaps in our educational systems. We recorded this episode on Monday, March 21st, just hours before the tragedy in Boulder, Colorado, when a gunman entered a grocery store and killed 10 people. But shortly after we taped it, we had the opportunity to speak with Congressman Mike Thompson from California for a future podcast episode. And because Congressman Thompson founded the House Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, and his comments on the Boulder shooting are so timely and important, we wanted you to hear that now. And we'll bring you the full episode with him next week. Congressman, I, I know that this issue of gun violence has been an important one to you, and you've been a really important leader on it. And because it's less than 24 hours since this terrible tragedy in Boulder, in which at least 10 people died at a King Supers grocery store, I just wanted to get your take on not so much what happened, but how do we process what happened? What should our response be to it? Every, every time there's an incident like this, people think this might be the one that leads us to more sensible gun laws. What's your perspective? Well, I, I hope those who believe that this will lead to more sensible gun laws are correct. It's still a very uphill battle that we're, we're facing. You know, the uh, work that I've done is focused on background checks, uh, a way to check people before they buy a gun uh, to ensure that they're not a criminal or they're not dangerously mentally ill. And uh, that bill is supported by 90% of the American people, but it still is highly partisan in the halls of Congress. Uh, my bill passed the House. We had eight Republican uh, votes for the bill, um, but you know that's that's clearly not reflective of uh, of uh, the support across the country. And then in the Senate, it's uh, it's going to have a real tough go because they have that sixty vote rule over there. But today they had a hearing on gun violence and gun violence prevention in the Senate, and you know we heard the we heard the likes of uh, Ted Cruz complaining. He said that, uh, uh, you know, Democrats have long said enough of the thoughts and prayers. Let's have some action. So he turned that into why are Democrats against prayer? Uh, and that type of uh, nonsense is not helpful at all and won't get us uh, to any uh, resolve on, on this issue. But I think folks need to be uh, outspoken. They need to demand that their members of Congress, both in the House and in the Senate, uh, take seriously this issue. You know, 30 people a day are killed by someone using a gun. If you add suicides and accidents, that number jumps up to 100 a day. And, and people should demand that their members of Congress in the House and in the Senate take it seriously and work across the aisle to bring about some sort of resolve. Uh, Congressman, is it your sense that there are uh, members on the other side of this issue who want to be where you are or personally believe that they should be, but uh, are basically intimidated by the gun lobby or the politics of it? Um, that, that's been my sense, but you're obviously so much closer to it. Well, I'm sure that that's part of it. Um, part of the job of being a member of Congress is to explain issues to your constituents and it's real easy to hide behind some fictitious line uh, rather than to do the work to understand the issue and, and, and the proposed uh, solution. A real good example is that the day that my bill was debated, 
there were a number of people that got up and talked about how uh, my bill, a bill to expand background checks, uh, was going to uh, put in place a national gun registry. And that's always been a fear of uh, some folks uh, in, in the gun community. And I, I got on the floor and, and I read from the bill. I, I actually, I gave I gave them the the page and the line number in the bill that specifically prohibits any gun registry from being created. And yet the next three speakers uh, to a person all said that it was going to create a registry. So um, there's a lot of dishonesty in, 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 in this debate. And we've got to cut through that and get to a discussion on the merits of, this, of the issue. And, and, and figure out what we can do that will continue to protect the Second Amendment, but keep guns out of the hands of those who shouldn't have them. Because you know, kids should be able to go to school without feeling unsafe. I, I can't tell you how many school-aged uh, students have, have told me that they're concerned that their school is going to be next. People need to feel safe going to uh, a church to pray, going to a concert, going to the grocery store. Uh, th this has become a, a, a tragedy that is witnessed too often. We need to, we, we need to address it. And I guess the last uh, thing I'd like to ask you about on this topic before we move on, Congressman, is you are obviously a straight talker and obviously somebody who's really passionate about these issues. At the same time, you've got a reputation for being uh, bipartisan, for being a problem solver, for working with the other side of the aisle. Uh, how do you make the two of those fit together? And that, that type of bipartisanship and problem solving uh, is so critical right now. Uh, how have you been able to navigate that? On this particular issue, I've, I've been able to convince at least eight Republicans in, in the House uh, that this is an important enough issue that we need to, to work on it uh, together. You know, I, I come with uh, some portfolio. I, I support the Second Amendment. Uh, I'm a gun owner. I have been forever. Uh, I, I, I know guns as, as well as anyone else. I I carried an assault weapon for a tour of duty in Vietnam. Uh, I own guns uh, uh, right here at home. Uh, I use them for hunting and for target shooting and, and, and certainly for self-protection. Um, so I, I, have a, uh, I have some credibility uh, with, with that, but uh, I'm always open to work with anybody who wants to work with me on issues that impact uh, my district, uh, our state or our, our, our country. And I think that uh, folks know that, and that's why I'm able to uh, work across the aisle. Well, thank you for your leadership on this. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. Although we may not talk too much about food this week because we've got a very special guest and I've got a special colleague joining me to have this conversation. I'll start with my colleague, Robert Simmons, who's our new managing director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. He's new to Share Our Strength, but he's not new to education. He's been the executive director of the Black Educators Initiative, a senior lecturer at American University, the CEO of the See Forever Foundation with the Maya Angelou Schools, a vice president of Campaign for Black Male Achievement, 
and was chief uh, innovation and research uh, director for the DC public school system. That is a long and varied history in education. And um, we're really glad to have you join us for this conversation, Robert. Thanks, Billy. Glad to be here and uh, talk to you um, and Dr. King. And John B. King, former secretary of education, now president and CEO of Education Trust, which I'll ask you, John, in a moment to describe for us. But I know that you do amazing work in uh, identifying and closing achievement gaps, starting at preschool, going all the way to college. You've had a fascinating background, uh, John, not just as Secretary of Education and Deputy before that, but New York State Education Commissioner and starting as a high school social studies teacher in Puerto Rico and Boston and then becoming a middle school principal. And I know your parents were career educators as well, and you've got a very powerful personal story in terms of the role that education has played in your life. Education and trust has become a really important partner for Share Our Strength. We're so admiring and inspiring of your work uh, and your leadership. And as you know from conversations we've had before, your leadership just made us want to invest and try to accelerate what you do and be cheerleaders on the side, but hopefully as supportive as we can be. So welcome, John King. Thanks so much. Excited for the conversation. Well, I know, John, that you've talked about this before, but it is so powerful. And I know many of our listeners won't have heard it. School ended up filling a very, very important role in your life. Just tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting to be such a force in education. Oh, well, thanks. So, so, you know, as you said, the story really begins with my parents who were both educators. Um, my, my father was African-American, grew up just after the turn of the 20th century in a very segregated New York City, but saw a path to opportunity as a teacher and then administrator. My mom was born in Puerto Rico, came to New York City as a kid, uh, again, saw a path to opportunity through education, was the first in her family to go to college and became a teacher and then a school counselor. And they both spent their whole lives working in the New York City public schools. My mom was actually a school counselor in my elementary school. Um, but they both um, passed away when I was a kid. As you said, my, my mom when I was eight and my dad when I was 12. Um, and my mom had a heart attack October of my fourth grade year. And then it was just my dad and me. And my dad was very sick with um, Alzheimer's. Nobody knew outside of our house. but um, And I didn't know why he was uh, acting the way that he did. But um, home was really hard. Uh, it was really inconsistent and unpredictable and scary. Um, and as he got more and more sick, I had to take on more and more responsibility at home, even to the point of having to figure out how to get food in our house. I remember being so profoundly hungry um, because he'd stopped going to the store and we just didn't have anything to eat. And I figured out that I, I had to find a way to get food in our house and had to figure out a way to keep our household going. Um, and during that period, the thing that saved me was school. It was the relationships with phenomenal New York City public school teachers who made school safe, engaging, interesting, fun, uh, a place where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid at home. Because you weren't um, even 12 yet, right? That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, in, in the classroom, 
you know, I remember the things we did like it was yesterday. We read the New York Times every day, fourth or sixth grade. We did productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare in Elementary School. We um, went to the museum and the ballet. It just it opened up a world of possibility outside of home that was so difficult. Mm-hmm. And even after my dad passed when I was 12, um, it was always teachers who gave me a sense of hope and purpose as I moved around different schools and, and family members. And so I really have always seen teachers as this incredible transformative force and when I was in college, I started doing work and after school and summer programs uh, with low-income students, students who had lots of struggles similar to mine, and fell in love with that work and really became a teacher because of what teachers did for me. And, and it's just incredibly satisfying when you can make a difference in, in students' lives. Hmm. Wait. You know, and Robert, uh, I should know this, but I don't. I know that you've got this incredible background in education, but I don't know where it started. And just I thought maybe before we jump into this conversation more, tell us how you got so interested in education. Um, You know, similar to John, it was because of my uh, time growing up in Detroit. Uh, My father was incarcerated the majority of my life and my mother, um, you know, bless her uh, soul, Uh, She was a librarian, so I spent more time in a library than any kid should probably spend. (laughs) Um, And um, I just grew in love with teaching, um, and I was recruited to a all-boys Jesuit high school in Detroit um, as they uh, wanted to maintain um, their presence in the city. And it was the first time I'd gone to school um, with, uh, white people. Um, I'd never been to school with all boys, never even heard of what knew what a Jesuit was. Um, and I was a scholarship kid. Right. And, um, my senior service project was in a school, um, working with third graders. And I never veered from that point on of realizing that, um, as my mother always talked about liberation for black folks came through education and literature and books. I realized that teaching was going to be my path to stand on her shoulders and the legacy of those that came before me. And so, um, you know, I was one of those uh, uh, interesting individuals that actually loved teaching in uh, middle school. And so, John, I'm sure you know that middle school teachers are probably just as nuts as the uh, as a student some days. Um, and so I would never want to be a principal managing a group of middle school teachers because it's uh, it's probably more difficult than anything that I could imagine you you would do. But uh, yeah, so similar to to John, I, I came to it because of what I experienced as a kid, um, both positive and negative growing up uh, in Detroit. Well, I'm so I'm so glad we're having this conversation when we're having it, because um, as we all know, the pandemic has taken such an especially tough toll on everybody and everywhere in every industry, but especially on education. Uh, and for for kids and particularly young kids having to learn in different ways and not having the, the contacts, it feels like one of the, the issues that, you know, affects every American and has some ability, I hope, to unite Americans in terms of uh, what we need to do going forward. Share our strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign has played a a small role in trying to make sure that we equip schools so that as kids do come back, or even if they're teaching in alternative ways or in hybrid ways, that they have what they need to keep feeding 
kids because as we all know, when kids are hungry, that, that impairs their ability to learn. So that's been uh, our, uh, our, our way of making an impact on this. But um, John Education Trust has an impact across a, a large swath of education. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your path was from teaching to ultimately policy, uh, becoming a commissioner in New York State, and then ultimately secretary of education. Uh, and then uh, how and why you chose Education Trust as your next chapter. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I loved teaching high school social studies. Um, but one of the things that I saw with many of my students was that they were coming into high school so far behind. I was teaching in Boston and I had ninth grade students who had fifth grade um, math and reading skills. And where, really were you where, where in Boston was it, John? Sorry. To uh, in, in sort of in the, in, um, the Roxbury section of Boston, the same neighborhood actually where I, where I started um, volunteering when I was in college. I, I mm -hmm. stayed in that community, mm -hmm. ended up being a teacher and principal in that same community. Mm -hmm. And what I saw with my students was that it was very difficult for them to make up all the ground that they needed to um, in high school. Although, you know, we worked really hard at, at supporting them and doing that. And so I started thinking about, well, maybe maybe I need to start earlier. And so that's what drew me to middle school because, you know, middle schoolers are, are just going through this life transformation, as, as, as Robert sort of suggested. And, you know, they're figuring out who they are and who they're going to be. And there's a way in which you can influence kids' trajectory so powerfully in middle school. And so I spent five years as a middle school principal in Roxbury. And I loved that work. And, I, and, and in some ways, it's the job I, I've had that where you can see your impact most directly day to day. You know, you could see uh, through the, the teacher's experience, the student's experience, family's experience, how your work mattered. Um, but after five years, I wanted to think about how to scale some of the things that, that I thought we were doing really well. We were, we were getting really great outcomes for low-income students of color, became the highest performing urban middle school in the state. And that really made me think about, well, how do I, how do I influence policy based on the things we've been doing? And uh, that took me to law school. And uh, I continue to stay involved in, in the work of creating um, high-performing urban schools, but, but it had this eye towards, towards policy. And um, that ultimately led me to take a role as deputy commissioner in New York State, uh, just as the Obama administration was getting started and there was a lot of new federal funding for efforts to improve um, teaching and learning. And that was an exciting time to, to be at a state education agency where we could be a part of that effort. Um, and, you know, was very blessed to, to have opportunities to lead in, in New York and then to, to join the Obama administration, have the president ask me to serve as secretary. Uh, and when the administration ended, the question for me was where could I keep working on the equity issues that had driven my whole career? And the Education Trust had this long history of really being an education civil rights organization, of working 
to advance education equity for low-income students and students of color uh, in early childhood in K through 12 and in higher ed, uh, doing a mix of research and advocacy and uh, a mix of federal and state policy work. And so it was the perfect place to, to come to after the administration. So just mm -hmm. after a brief vacation uh, after the administration uh -huh. ended, I came to EdChess. Uh, what was, uh, as Secretary of Education, um, how would you describe your, uh, I guess, the, the achievement you're proudest of? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say in many ways it was sort of building on work that had been taking place throughout the administration to try to make the agency um, a voice for civil rights, uh, things like reforming discipline practices to address mm -hmm racial disparities in, in discipline, you know, boy, boys and girls of color are disproportionately suspended from school uh, beginning in pre-K. And so that was a major area of focus for us trying to reform discipline practices, um, working to um, raise the standards for teaching and learning and trying to help states and districts Think about how you better prepare students for college and career success, working on initiatives around college uh, access and affordability, um, including one project which I loved, which we continued to work on at Ed Trust, which was uh, we had a pilot program to restore access to Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. Uh, one of the many policy mistakes of the 94 crime bill was banning access to Pell Grants, the main federal financial aid uh, for folks who are incarcerated. The result was college programs and prisons all over the country closed, hundreds of them. And a few stayed open with private philanthropy, but uh, we had this period where uh, there's very little going on in terms of higher ed access. It must and have just been a disaster when that happened. It, it, it was awful. It was awful and just so misguided, you know. Um, what was the thinking yeah. behind it? I mean, it's so misguided yeah. that I'm, I, I mean, I get the kind of the punitive nature of it, but I can't think of another reason why we would do something so counterproductive. I mean, that really was the driver. I think the, the punitive nature and a sort of yep. uh, a mindset in 94 that was a sort of a tough on crime mindset that if you were sufficiently punitive, that would um, cause people uh, you know, to be sort of uh, scared into not being um, mm -hmm. involved in criminal activity. And the, the, what it ignores is that, um, you know, 95% of the folks who are incarcerated are coming home. And the question is, are they going to come home with skills and opportunities to contribute to their families and communities or not? And it just makes no sense to have um, prison be uh, a place where uh, we just warehouse folks. It ought mm -hmm. to be, we ought to have a mindset about it that is uh, about rehabilitation, about access to uh, addiction treatment, mental health services, um, and education. And frankly, we should have a lot fewer people who are incarcerated. We have, we have an obsession in this country with, with incarceration as our response to mm -hmm. social challenges. Hey, so, John, can you, can, hey, Billy, can I, I just want yeah, to please. ask about that in terms of um, the work that the 
the trust is doing in this space. Mm. What progress do you see being made when it comes to the intersection between incarceration and education writ large? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So in the Obama administration, we created this pilot program to allow 65 colleges and universities to offer um, courses paid for with Pell Grants in prison. And the idea behind the pilot was to try to show people how effective this could be and, and, and make it possible to get members of Congress and governors to come and visit these programs. Well, when I came to Ed Trust, we sort of took up the mantle of this project, continued to work to, to encourage its expansion. Uh, the education department during the last administration actually expanded the program. I, I didn't agree with much that they did, but that was a good thing. Uh, and then we had a huge victory in December in the, in the last relief package. Uh, Congress repealed the ban on access to Pell Grants. And so now the department has to implement that repeal, but um, that was a huge victory. And really the credit goes to the folks who were directly impacted. Uh, their stories, their testimony, their time spent with members of Congress was really powerful and moved the conversation. Congress also in December banned uh, or removed question 23 on the, on the FAFSA, on the free application for federal student aid. Question 23 essentially prevented people with drug convictions from being able to access um, federal student aid. It was very problematic and very short-sighted. And so that was removed as well. So we had some, some really good wins through legislative advocacy that we were very involved in at EdTrust. But again, I, I give the credit really to the folks who were directly impacted for their leadership. Got it. Yeah, that's super helpful um to hear um and i know that the trust at least last i heard uh you all were working on a mini documentary about this is that still happening yes we are and we also are launching a justice fellows program okay. where we will have folks who have been incarcerated or otherwise impacted by the criminal justice system who will be a part of our team uh, mm -hmm. to work on improving uh, access to higher education and also some of the issues um, you know, even once we ensure that folks while incarcerated are able to get access to these educational opportunities, then there's a question of how do we support reentry? How do we help folks when they come mm. home, continue their education, complete their education? How do we help colleges and universities provide adequate supports uh, for students who've been impacted by the criminal justice system? So this continues to be a priority of our, our work at Interest. Absolutely. You know, as I'm listening to... Uh, both of you talk about your you know, kind of the path that you were on. One of the things that strikes me, uh, John, is you're talking about, you know, the uh, wanting to be involved in policy because of the inequity you saw. And Robert, when I think about all the work you did in education and now working on uh, equity issues, even more centrally with Share Our Strength, I, I guess that, you know, the kind of the call out for me is that if you're within, if you're on the ground in the education system, you cannot uh, it, it cannot be escaped that the system is uh, filled with inequity. That ju that just must hit you hard. And I think even, John, I think you gave congressional testimony back in June where you said some version of the educational system is fraught with racial inequity. It, I mean, is that is that something that it's just when you're in it, it's mm. so apparent? It sounds like it was for each of you. I mean, it's apparent, but I think that as a teacher you're so busy fighting for your kids, you don't necessarily look around 
at the larger system. At least I didn't because I was so knee deep in working with my students. I think when I was CEO of the Sea Forever Foundation and the Maya Angelou schools, I did a little more of that. But even then, it was hyper local um, dealing with alternative schools dealing with um, New Beginnings, which was the juvenile detention facility in Maryland that we collaborated with uh, DYRS on in D.C. Um, I think that it's just difficult to kind of, when you're on the ground, to kind of poke your head out and start that process. But I think on the flip side, and John, I'd be interested in, in your perspective from the Secretary of Ed's seat is Many one of my frustrations over the years has been many of the folks who make policy decisions and write policy either have one of three things that are problematic. No teaching experience. Um, very little, maybe three years or under teaching experience or were terrible teachers and not engaged with community. And so the disconnect between the policymakers and the folks on the ground in the community is oftentimes uh challenging. And Ernest Morell and Jeffrey Duncan Andrade once said that um, the, the school system as it's currently structured, in particular in urban communities, is actually not broken, that it's producing the intended outcome. And I, I thought that was one of the most profound things that I heard them say in this book for many years ago. Um, and I've heard Jeff talk about it in other places. Um, and it's always stuck with me um, in, in so many uh, different ways. So, uh, John, certainly love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, sadly, I, I think that's that's right. The system is inequitable at every level. We give the least to the kids who need the most. You know, low-income students and students of color are less likely to have access to quality early childhood education. Uh, mm. Are disproportionately in schools that are funded at lower levels have less access to the best prepared teachers have less access to advanced coursework, um, have less access to school counselors. Think about this. We have 1.7 million kids who go to a school where there's a law enforcement officer, but no school counselor. Mm -hmm. um, students of color and low-income students get less support around that transition to post-secondary education. And even when you look at post-secondary education, um, Students of color and low-income students are overrepresented in the institutions that get the least resources, community colleges and, and regional public colleges. Uh, and they are dramatically underrepresented at, this, at the higher ed institutions with the most resources, state flagships and um, uh, elite private institutions. So the whole system uh, reinforces very often inequality. And that, that's really what we exist to challenge at the Education Trust. And it's what I saw our job at the Education Department when I was secretary as um, trying to dismantle, trying to take apart the elements of the system that are obstacles to equality of opportunity. Uh, but it is deeply baked into our society. And look, it's it's tied to to very deeply to how we think about race in this country. You know, I'm sitting in Silver Spring, Maryland, about 25 miles from where my great grandfather was enslaved. Um, you know, part of our uh, how we got here is that our our country's existence has been bound up with 
slavery, segregation, Jim Crow. Um, that's part of how we got here. And we have, we have to be willing to have that difficult conversation as a country. Well, you know, let, let, let's talk a little bit about um, where that difficult conversation can lead us, because uh, one of the things that I had read uh, from you, John, and, and I took a lot of hope in it, was uh, you're saying that racial inequity is significant, but not insurmountable. Uh, what will it take to surmount this? Um, and I, and I, I think we're all saying that it's got to be surmounted in our society if we're going to be successful in our schools but what are the what are some of the things that it would take to to demonstrate that it's not insurmountable yeah well i think that at its core it's a question of public will are we as a democracy willing to commit ourselves to that work of both reconciliation and um establishing equitable systems. You know, I would argue we should start with school and with education. I think if our education system was more equitable, we would have a more equitable society. Um, but it will take, you know, reevaluating how we fund schools. It will take reevaluating uh, how we approach the teaching profession, as, as Robert's worked on. Uh, we have a huge mismatch between our teacher population and our student mm -hmm. population. Majority of our kids are kids of color. Only 18% of our teachers are teachers of color. Only 2% of our teachers are African-American men. So getting to equity will require rethinking the, the teaching profession. Getting to equity will yep. require rethinking how resources are distributed in our higher education system. But it is possible. I mean, you think about this, the American Rescue Plan and some of the provisions there, including the expansion of the child tax credit, which has the potential to cut child poverty nearly in half. Um, you know, that's been a policy goal for a long time. But in this moment, this moment of national reckoning with issues of racial justice, this moment of grappling with the consequences of COVID and the frailty of our safety net, we finally have the public will um, to take this action on the child tax credit. That gives me hope that maybe we're coming to a place of greater public understanding of the role government has to play in ensuring equality of opportunity. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been obsessing about the child tax credit uh, for a, a couple of different reasons. One is that, you know, to me at least, it was, uh, you know, three months ago or even during the Obama administration, it would have been unthinkable, right? This was a level of investment in children that we just, as you say, we never had the public will for. And so the fact that it happened as quickly as it did and at the magnitude it, it did does give me hope. And I think of it, you know, when you look at correlations between family income and um, so many other things that we care about for kids, including how they do at school uh, and certainly their nutritional status, uh, it makes a big difference. I mean, you can argue that there's a there's a, a piece of this American Rescue Plan beyond just the investment in the schools, but the child tax credit in particular, which is an educationally impactful measure. Um, but but I'm also concerned that it that it the other reason I'm obsessing about it is because we know that there's a lot of programs that um, when they become law, that's half the battle. And the other half is making sure that 
people mm. avail themselves of it and know how to do it and have the assistance they need to uh, receive the assistance that they're they're now eligible for. And uh, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm concerned that we're not set up to do that yet. I mean, that, that's a fair worry. I mean, we saw that with, with our experience working on pandemic EBT that, um, you know, where we were fortunate to persuade folks that it was important to invest in uh, financial assistance for families to get the access to food that would have been provided through the free and reduced price lunch program were school in session. And we got that done, but then states struggled on the implementation side. So you're, you're exactly mm -hmm. right. We need, we need competent execution. Hey, hey, John, just I, I want to ask you, as you're talking about competent execution, you mentioned teachers. This is, as you know, um, I, I'm definitely concerned about the diversity of the teaching force. Um, and um, the interesting thing is with the partnership between Education Trust and Share Our Strength, it seems like there's an opportunity to to center teachers in general and their understanding uh, food access and its impact on schools. And I always tell the story of, of many schools when it was time to take the standardized tests, they would give kids food that was the wrong food for them to actually take a test. It wasn't like Nutri-Grain bars or something like brain food. It was a cookie or chips or like some something crazy. And, and, and I'm curious, as you're thinking about this partnership with Education Trust and Share Our Strength, one, how did you get connected to uh, Share Our Strength and the No, and, uh, no Kid Hungry campaign? Um, and then what do you see the partnership looking like as things go forward? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we originally connected actually when I was uh, at the education department and we were working on, on summer meals and the challenge that we have as a country that because we have millions of kids who rely on school for meals, but because they're away from school in the summer, uh, even though the meals are offered in school buildings, uh, families are much less likely to access those meals. And so we were working mm -hmm. on a campaign when I was secretary with No Kid Hungry on uh, summer meals access. And so I've always sort of followed the work of No Kid Hungry, but then we reconnected in the, in, in the response to COVID because it was clear that much like the summer problem that we had pre-COVID, we now had the problem that buildings were gonna be closed and kids were not gonna be able to access food. And so we needed both waivers to make it easier for schools to distribute meals uh, in ways that made sense in the context of a pandemic like grab and go meals, uh, but also that there was an opportunity through an electronic benefits process to, to get them the money to families that they needed to, to buy food at, at a grocery store or farmer's market. Mm. And so we've partnered in that work. And our, to my mind, our larger partnership now is about making sure that kids and families have the food that they need, but ultimately making the policy changes necessary to have a more healthy, uh, well-functioning, system as a country around food. You know, you think about, I think the statistic is that maybe only 8% of African Americans live in a census tract with a, with a grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, that's a disaster. And that's a, that's a, 
that's a, that's a result of policy choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can make different policy choices. And so now I think, you know, our broader partnership is really how do we mobilize folks who care about education, folks who work in education, and folks who care about food justice, and folks who work in food justice as a coalition to try to demand better systems. I want to turn the tables a little bit. Uh, John, I actually want to ask Billy a question on his own podcast, right? Like, so I want to take it. But but yeah, like, let's just, you know, this is what happens in in teaching, John. You know, you just start doing these things that totally are off script. But Billy, when you think about your legacy and the work that you've done through Share Our Strength and so on and so forth, what do you see in your worldview uh, the partnership yielding between share our strength um, and uh, uh, the trust. Yeah, well, I guess the the first thing I would say is when any uh, whenever I hear the words "thinking about your legacy," it makes me feel very old. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over that <laughs> that, that part of it because uh, yeah. I, I don't feel old. I actually feel energized by uh, yes. what what we're doing together. But I but I think you know what we're going to accomplish together is uh, several things. One is I I think we're gonna together demonstrate that that hunger is a uh, particularly as it affects children is a is a solvable problem this is to me one of the most compelling things about our work is kids in this country aren't hungry for the reasons that kids around the rest of the world are hungry it's not war or famine or drought it's really the political will that john was talking about a little while ago and and we know that we have not just food but food programs in abundance uh, so we can we can solve this problem uh, but we've also uh, got to make clear that hunger is a uh, symptom of uh, a number of deeper issues uh, that have to do with poverty and that have to do with inequity and that have to do with structural racism. And we've got to help people understand part of our education uh, task is to help people understand that there is a connection and we don't really get to achieve no kid hungry just by enrolling kids in food programs. We've got to get to these broader policy issues. And I think we'll do that. It's, it's a big step for us as an organization. Um, you know, most people understand that we get kids meals. We don't obviously do it ourselves, but we do it through partners and making sure they have access to programs that um, they're eligible for. But uh, there's an opportunity now, and you were talking about this being a moment uh, John, where there is public will, there is an understanding uh, between the pandemic and everything uh, the, the country has learned about race equity issues over the last number of months. I think there's a, a, a broader permission to go deeper to solve some of these problems. And that moment won't last forever. So I, I want to make sure we seize it. And I love the idea of kind of seizing it in partnership with Education Trust. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, I know we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you, talking about uh, uh, public will and political will, uh, John, you've also recently created uh, something called Strong Future Maryland um, that's aimed at uh, dismantling systemic racism in a, uh, in a sense in our uh, legislative vehicles there. Um, and there's been, and I, and I love uh, you, talking about one of my favorite quotes of yours is that we need more than hashtag activism. Uh, just mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but I know that you know, there's also been some speculation that uh, you might uh, get involved in elected office yourself. And I, I don't think anyone has 
declared their candidacy yet on Add Passion and Stir. And you're welcome to be the first if you want to announce you're running for governor here, but don't feel obliged um, because it may be early. But um, tell us about Strong Future Maryland. Sure. Well, you know, I, so I, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. And what was clear to me at the outset of COVID was that there was going to be a disparate impact on communities of color and, and low-income communities. And that our recovery, if it was going to be a robust one, was going to need to tackle some of the inequities that existed before COVID, that it wasn't going to be good enough to try to get back to February 2020, that actually we needed, um, and maybe this is, this is a nerdy high school social studies teacher way to think about it, but we needed a New Deal moment where we would say, how do we emerge from this crisis with a stronger uh, social fabric. And so at Strong Future Maryland, we're working in four areas, uh, investment in education, uh, certainly K-12, um, supporting a, a big new investment in the state's historically black colleges and universities, um, calling for more investment in early childhood. Uh, second area of work around the social safety net, protecting people from eviction, uh, finally getting paid family leave in the state. Um, reducing some of the uh, the exceptions to the sick leave rules, which COVID has shown us make no sense. Um, and then a third category of work around broad-based economic development, which means really tackling uh, access to economic opportunity for historically marginalized communities. The speaker here, uh, Speaker Jones, is um, the first African-American woman to be speaker and has a a set of, of proposals she's made around a black economic agenda to try to address racial inequities and in access to economic opportunity. And we've been working closely with her on that. And then a fourth body of work around climate change, because ultimately climate change and environmental justice issues are a huge threat to our um, well-being as a society. And Maryland, unfortunately, has been trailing behind other states in terms of action on climate, even though we are maybe number two in the country in terms of interior coastland. Uh, and we're already seeing the consequences of climate change for uh, different parts of the state, including for farmers who are seeing out on the eastern shore, they're seeing saltwater intrusion into farmland. And so uh, we've really got to take more aggressive action on climate. And so that's been a priority for us. So, you know, again, it's an, another opportunity to try to nudge public policy towards, um, closer towards our values around equality of opportunity, democracy, and justice. You've got your hands full. <laughs> uh, any yes, advice indeed. for, any advice for the new secretary of education, Miguel Cardona? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I've uh, been talking to Miguel as he's as he's transitioning into the role, and I, and have been encouraging him uh, one to to really rebuild the department as a civil rights agency. That was not a priority for the previous administration, and so uh, capacity in the Office for Civil Rights, for example, uh, has been quite diminished. Um, the department historically has played a role in protecting 
students, particularly low-income students and students of color from exploitation by predatory for-profit colleges. Uh, that function of the department was allowed to uh, deteriorate uh, and, and really dismantled by the prior administration. So there's a lot of work just to restore the agency to the ability to lean in on civil rights issues. Um, certainly figuring out how we ensure a learning recovery from this COVID period and a socio-emotional recovery. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge academic toll on kids without question. Um, some projections for low-income students and students of color, maybe a year of lost learning, but uh, as a result of the unfinished instruction. But the but the almost more worrisome thing is the socio-emotional and mental health toll on kids uh, as a result of the isolation from teachers and peers. And um, so, we, you know, he knows the top of top of the list has to be not only getting kids back to school safely, but then ensuring that we address the toll that COVID has taken. One of the things Robert and I were chatting about uh, in anticipation of talking to you was uh, whether uh, as Secretary of Education or for the Education Department, uh, are, there, are there challenges and frustrations? I'm assuming there are to the fact that so much of education is locally controlled and yet you're trying to influence um remember chatting about this the other day robert what what mm -hmm. um how do you manage that is, or is that just the nature of our federal government well you know it is we have this very decentralized system you know the education department which all which at the federal level only puts in about eight to ten percent of the funds 90 percent of the funds are at the local and state level you've got 50 states and territories setting policy on things like standards and teacher certification. But then most of the kind of substantive decisions about curriculum, about how the day is organized, about who gets hired, those decisions are made by 13,000 school boards. And so, you know, the department, I think, really has to think of its role as civil rights enforcement, using federal dollars to advance equity, incentivizing um, equity, and then uh, leveraging the bully pulpit. I mean, in many ways, the secretary is like the Surgeon General for education, and it is in a position to try to lift people's aspirations. Um, so I know one thing that Miguel Cardona is talking about, which I think is so important, is socio-emotional learning, and what does it look like to create environments that build kids' um, socio-emotional resilience. It's really powerful, even though he, he may not have dollars he can send immediately for that purpose, he can use the platform to encourage folks, um, particularly as they figure out how to use the $125 plus billion that are coming through the American Rescue Plan to school districts. Robert, what have we left out? I think, what's your message, um, John, to... Um, teachers, um, you know, I always say to folks that, um, you know, teachers um, are one of the biggest pillars of a democracy, a strong mm -hmm. democracy. Um, what's your message to teachers as they, um, you know, there's all sorts of opinions about opening schools, but one of the voices oftentimes that's left out are, uh, is our teachers. What's your message to teachers as we kind of head to many schools reopening and just kind of where things are headed in education. 
There's two, two things. One is thank you, because teachers have done just extraordinary work to stay connected with kids over this mm-hmm. period, um, have helped get food to families, have helped families figure out internet access, uh, have helped kids navigate um, their college applications in a complicated mm-hmm. context. So, so thank you. And then the other message is that we really, that we need to center relationships as we think about the return to school. Um, relationships really are the foundation. And uh, of course, we need rich, engaging, rigorous learning experiences, but those have to be built on a foundation of relationships. We've really got to think student by student, who's an adult at school that this child is connected to, um, who knows what they're going through that can support them through difficulty. And if we have kids who become disconnected, we've got to figure out, well, who's the adult or mentor who's going to reach out to them so that they can be in relationship uh, with an adult mentor? That's just so critical. And thinking about how do we set the tone, whether kids are coming back this spring or or in the fall, how do, how do we set a tone where um, kids are able to express how they're feeling, what they're going through, uh, where they feel supported and cared about. And uh, there are a lot of pressures and, and certainly managing all the public health guidance is a huge pressure on, on school districts and on educators. Mm-hmm. But we've really got to make sure that those relationships are strong. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thanks. Hey, Robert, before we go, just tell us about your podcast so our listeners are aware. Yeah, appreciate it. Our podcast is a part of um, the uh, uh, Eight Black Cans Network, and I'm sure John is uh, familiar with Eight Black Cans. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we are three times dope, and we have a uh, listenership of folks that enjoy talking about all things education, all things society, and all things culture. Uh, and so I appreciate the opportunity to share that. Um, and we actually had two share our strength uh, colleagues um, who uh, are now uh, catch their catchphrase is two dope Chicanas. They're both in Texas. Um, <laughs> and so they talked a lot about the impact of the storm uh, in Texas and uh, in the Latino community. Um, and they uh, did amazing work, Janine um, and Stacy. Um, are super thoughtful leaders in our organization. So we're just happy to always elevate uh, voices um, and certainly want to open up opportunities to have uh, both Billy and John have you come on our podcast uh, to bring your brilliance and insight uh, to our network. And the best place to find it, Robert, is uh, is Facebook. That's where I found it. Uh, yeah, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Um, so it's all over the place. We only do it once a month because all of us uh, are busy. Um, and so that's, I can't do the eight black cans thing where they're every Sunday at nine. That's too much work <laughs> for me with everything going on. But, uh, I, I appreciate, uh, you asking Billy, um, and certainly, um, appreciate it. Um, and have to name the share our strength colleagues that came on and we were very intentional about elevating the voices of women of color, um, during women's history month, um, as a part of eight black cans, cause we work in solidarity, uh, with communities and also want to, uh, bring voice, uh, to communities of color. Um, and I want to acknowledge our commitment to supporting uh, Asian brothers and sisters um, as they endure the horrific violence uh, that is being uh, placed uh, on their lives. Um, So just want to honor uh, those folks in that uh, Asian community um, at this particular point in our democracy. 
Thank you so much for doing that, Robert. I want to thank you both, my colleague Robert Simmons, our Managing Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Share Our Strength, and former uh, Education Secretary and now CEO and President of Education Trust, John B. King, who is just absolutely one of the most inspiring leaders in education today. We look to you for cues and mentorship and guidance, John, in terms of the kind of things that we should be doing at Share Strength to make the connection between hunger and education. And uh, your leadership is just indispensable. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Billy and and, and Billy and Robert. I'm, I'm grateful to both of you for the partnership with Share Our Strength and look forward to the work ahead. Can't wait to do more together. Uh, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly podcast. You can find us uh, at addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes that you can rate, rank, or share with friends. I want to thank our entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign for making the podcast possible. And our key point person, Kelly Griffin, as well as my sister, Debbie Shore, and our producers at District Productive, McKenna Chester and Paul Whittle. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Thank you.